Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, October 15th, we're studying Proverbs chapter 28, verses 1 through 28. The Proverbs of Solomon, recorded by the men of Hezekiah, continue teaching the wisdom that begins with the fear of the Lord. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Ryan Agrotowitz. Pastor Agrotowitz serves as Associate Pastor and Headmaster at Grace Lutheran Church and School in Brenham, Texas. Pastor Agrotowitz, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thank you, Pastor Apple. Good to be here as always. As we get started this morning, Pastor Agrotowitz, let's talk a little bit about the book of Proverbs in general. What do we need to know about Solomon, wisdom literature, Proverbs that'll help us with our chapter for today? Well, it's the inspired Word of God. So we wanted to keep that in mind, and the entire Word of God always testifies and points us to Jesus Christ, who is the wisdom of God incarnate. Solomon being the wisest of kings, uh, we would do ourselves very well to heed his wisdom, and no doubt he is inspired by the Holy Spirit when he pens this book. I think, generally speaking, Proverbs is a book that the first nine, ten chapters really lays down the foundation for wisdom, emphasizing how important wisdom is, and then once you get past chapter 10, it begins to break off into these little bitty uh, verses and just really gold nuggets of, of wisdom for us. It's loosely structured. I think if you dig into a chapter, a couple chapters, sometimes you can you know, lump one, two, maybe even three verses together and find a theme. But a lot of Proverbs, once, especially you get past chapter 10, these verses can really stand on their own. So it's, I think I said this last time, but it's one of the books of the Bible where you can just take a verse and need no context to convey its meaning. So by the time you get to 28, you know, the reader has gone through and, and learned quite a bit about a lot of different things. Uh, it's a book that describes the Church's life in the world, what we will face. There's a lot of descriptions in here by a very, very wise king who has seen quite a bit, and these descriptions of life in this fallen world as the Church militant are helpful, because we know not only how we are to live and what we're supposed to do, but we also see in Proverbs how the wicked are going to be, and what we can almost expect from them when we're having to deal with them, and when they're put in places of authority. So when a wicked ruler takes the steering wheel, Proverbs is good about telling us what to expect, and we're going to get to some of that today. Let's take a look then. Proverbs 28, we'll begin at verse 1 and go about halfway through the chapter. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. When a land transgresses, it has many rulers, but with a man of understanding and knowledge, its stability will long continue. A poor man who oppresses the poor is a beating rain that leaves no food. Those who forsake the law praise the wicked, but those who keep the law strive against them. Evil men do not understand justice but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. Better a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. The one who keeps the law is a son with understanding, but a companion of gluttons shames his father. Whoever multiplies his wealth by interest and profit 
gathers it for him who is generous to the poor. If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Whoever misleads the upright into an evil way will fall into his own pit, but the blameless will have a goodly inheritance. A rich man is wise in his own eyes, but a poor man who has understanding will find him out. When the righteous triumph, there is great glory, but when the wicked rise, people hide themselves. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. And that was through verse 14 of Proverbs chapter 28. We'll pause there, Pastor Agrotowitz. Let's start our conversation in verse 1. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. We've seen this contrast throughout the book of Proverbs, the wicked and the righteous, often synonyms for the fool and the wise. What is Solomon saying here in verse 1 about the wicked and the righteous? Sure. Well, the wicked is going to be the unbeliever, and the righteous is the one who has faith in God and lives according to his holy word. So these aren't just terms talking about, you know, outward fruits. You're wicked because you do bad things, or righteous because you do good things. Um, But chiefly, the righteous person is the one who heeds the wisdom and believes in the wisdom of God, whereas the wicked is the one who rejects all of it and is a fool in the sense he or she denies what God is giving them and telling them. The term fool is a specific biblical category. The fool uh, in his heart says there is no God, to quote one passage, that designates the fool as the one who doesn't believe in any of the good things that God gives and does for such a person. So by the time, you know, again, we get to 28 in Proverbs, these words should be pretty clear in our minds that you're talking about belief and unbelief right here, the wicked and the righteous. And the wicked flee when no one pursues, for the righteous have courage and they have boldness. And that's not too hard to understand why the righteous has his confidence, not in his flesh or in this world, but the righteous one is the one who trusts in his Lord and his God, despite the circumstances which, you know, in this fallen world can be very bad, daunting, perplexing, confusing, but our hope and confidence is always in Jesus. The wicked have no hope, they have no confidence, and so they're, they're governed by fear. They're governed by fear, and since their confidence is misplaced, even when no one is pursuing, the fear is just, is just great, because everything is a scary place. Because there is no God who has scored the victory in their lives, in their hearts, uh, for the reason they have no faith to trust in the God who created all things, and he will come again to bring his people to be at home with himself. I'm reminded of a saying of Luther, and maybe you've heard it, it's in Genesis, where it, I'm paraphrasing it, but it goes something like this. After the fall, the plunge into sin by our first parents, Adam could have heard a leaf hit the ground, and he would have been afraid. Point being, once sin comes in the world, the world is a very, very scary place for reasons that we're all aware of. Where is our hope and confidence, our trust, our courage? Well, on account of being righteous in Christ, we have our confidence in the Lord, our God. So that's that's really the essence of that verse and those those two words that you pointed out. Hmm. I, that's a I, I've heard that Luther quote before. I, I can't remember the exact quote, but you've you've gotten the gist of it for sure. That that after the fall into sin, apart from 
the gospel, that is, everything comes to us and, and we would be afraid. And it's it's a bit telling, I think, you know, the wicked flee when no one pursues. Oftentimes, I think the wicked put on a show of bravado that they they don't show that fear outwardly, but it's it's a cover for that fear. When when the wicked put on that show, and, and I think that I mean I think you can see that within public discourse in our country today, where these these great shows of bravado apart from Christ are often just a cover for the fear that is there because they don't know the God of grace and mercy in Jesus Christ like the righteous do. And so they can truly be as bold as a lion. Right, right. Yeah, the righteous can be bold. And for the wicked, it's a cover. Their boldness, it can oftentimes just be covering some deep insecurity, some deep problem or guilt. And that's sad, because that shouldn't be the case. You know, you have a God who has taken away your, your sins in the person of Jesus, who certainly reigns over the heavens and the earth. I mean, not a sparrow falls to the ground without him knowing. So, yeah, for the church, there's no need to be afraid, and we pray that the wicked would repent and find their confidence and trust in the God of, of grace and mercy. Verse 2, when a land transgresses, it has many rulers, but with a man of understanding and knowledge, its stability will long continue. Uh, there's a number of directions I think we could go with this verse, Pastor Agrotowitz. One thing that comes to my mind is that you see Saint King Solomon here, and, and this being among the section of Proverbs copied by men of Hezekiah, you see Solomon, I, th- I think, being a bit prophetic here in the sense that this really plays itself out within the history of the people of Israel, that when a land transgresses, it has many rulers. When you look particularly at the history of the northern kingdom, Israel, that's very true. They're caught up in the sin of the idolatry of Jeroboam, and so they have many rulers. There are many dynasties, in fact. Whereas with a man of understanding and knowledge, its stability will long continue. Think David. Think Solomon, think Hezekiah and Josiah later, and when the kings are faithful, there is a, a stability there, and that even often lasts more than one generation. That's at least one thing that comes to my mind from this verse. I'll I'll let you take a stab at it. Well, everyone's got a competing voice. Everybody thinks you know they should rule and they have the right thing to say. And when you have a culture who is confused and filled with sin and sinful ideas. It, it's almost like an every man for himself. I like what you said about Israel. And if you just read First, Second Kings, First, Second Chronicles, it gets to a point where it's like fall the bouncy ball in dynasties, right? This king here, that king there. It's like they're just coming and going. And I couldn't help when I read that verse to think about you know our own society. Um, and instead of seeing you know a nation really just a stability in our own society, even amongst those people who maybe they don't agree with the president, but they're still acknowledging him as president and abiding as far as they can according to the rule of law and so forth. Even that today has has largely disappeared, in my opinion, to where, you know, there are just so many people clamoring for a voice, attention, claiming that they know the right way to rule, um, all the magistrates airing their opinion and we're seeing that instead of this stable union under a president whose office has been established by God. And again, like I said earlier, people acknowledging that office, even if they don't agree with the person. So I think there's a lot to be said for our own society. But the Israel example that you brought up in Scripture is, is in my opinion, the best one. 
the people have sinned, and with their sins, with their transgressions, you also see at the top a king who is acting wicked and sinful. And it comes to a point in the historical books like First Kings and First Chronicles. They're just coming and going. So that's a lesson for us. You know, if we want some stability to uh, first repent of our sins and pray God would give us a ruler with discernment and understanding. Hmm. For sure. I mean, I think that that first part of the verse, when a land transgresses, it has many rulers, that I, I don't get to lay the blame at the feet of my ruler completely. When, when, there, when I see that I have a, a wicked ruler, part of my response as a Christian is repentance for myself and sure. and not to not to put the blame on someone else but to reflect where where have I sinned where have I transgressed God's law where where am I perhaps receiving for my own sin what I actually deserve temporally not not to yeah. say that God yeah. punishes but to recognize that look when when I transgress that's going to have consequences in my life and and so part of that is a call to myself to repent which I think I mean again given our current climate in our country this is wise for us as Christians to to look at the situation and start with repentance. Start with repentance, right? I, I I'm reminded of another Luther quote. Um, if I would have had some foresight, I would have actually had a reference before the show, but they're just coming to me now. One where he says, "Rarely does God give the people a ruler they don't deserve." Mm. <laughs> I think that touches upon this. When a land transgresses, you're going to have many rulers and and just a lot of confusion. But the onus, the burden, yeah, it's on you, it's on me. It starts with repentance, and there's plenty of reason to repent. Mm, Definitely. The the other connection, I I think, that we could make here, and this verse 2, I think, certainly applies in the civil realm. But even within within the church, I think we could could take these words and, and use them. And particularly, I mean, anytime I see the king in the book of Proverbs, I want to make a connection to Jesus. And and so consider how Jesus is the man of understanding and knowledge and and his kingdom does endure forever. He is the king in the line of David that that reigns forever. That we we see this, certainly we can see examples of this within history in earthly kingdoms. But ultimately the place that has the man of understanding and knowledge ruling over it as a as a king and its stability continues forever, well that's that's the church under the rule of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah, sure. My mind went to the civil realm, but what you just said is is accurate, and I said earlier how the Scriptures testify to Jesus, and that's a great connection to make, that as the Church, the one true Church, has the one head, our true God, true man, Jesus Christ, who, yes, in Him we have all the stability we need. Yeah, that's spot on. It's good. Mm. Pastor Grotto, it's, there's there's so much here, and we we can go verse by verse, but I'll I'll, I'll let you direct the conversation at, at this point from verse two. Where where do you want to go next? Right. Well, we'll do uh, verse three, four, and five and six. I think those four we're going to take those in a chunk. A poor man who oppresses the poor is a beating rain that leaves no food. Those who forsake the law praise the wicked, but those who keep the law strive against them. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. And better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. I'll stop there. So three talks about a poor person, six talks about a poor person, four talks about forsaking the law, and five, I would argue, is related to the law as well. 
uh, you see a person who is evil, and then those who seek the Lord have some understanding. So at verse 3, you know, the poor who oppresses the poor, uh, you know, a good commentary on who should be the boss, right? Mm. If someone is at the top, and they're in a position where others are under them, and they can oppress if they want to, and they themselves are poor, that is not helpful, and that is wise. You would expect someone at the top who could really help the poor, rather than being a poor person who who oppresses others. That's like a beating rain, and it leaves no food, precisely because you have oppression taking place of the poor by a poor person himself. And that term right there for poor person, a poor man, excuse me, Gever, the reason I was making some hay about, you know, him being at the top or in some sort of position of of authority, it has it has the the, the meaning of it, almost of a, a person of of some rank, of some uh, valor about him, and yet he's poor, he's in need. Now that doesn't make a lot of sense unless he's in a position. I'm thinking of someone like who's maybe a CEO of a company and they can't manage their pocketbook, or they just don't have a lot of wisdom. That's not the situation you want. So another observation by Solomon, when the poor are oppressing the poor, especially when someone who is poor and they shouldn't be, that tells you that situation is not good. And then verse 4, forsaking the law to praise the wicked. My goodness, we could spend the rest of the time talking about that verse. (laughs) Why do people love wickedness? Well, they forsake the law of God and his teaching. Um, I mean, examples abound in our society and you know, maybe it's just me, but I read so many verses here, and my, my mind as a pastor flashes to what we're dealing with now. Why do people praise things like homosexuality, abortion, you know, taking wealth from one person in an unrightful, unlawful way and just giving it to someone else? I mean, all of these things, well, when you become unhinged from the law and teaching of God, you're going to praise the wicked and want the wicked people in power. So a very poignant verse, and those who keep the law strive against them. The church militant is the church on earth that does have to fight. You know, we can't keep our heads in the sand and adopt a quietism that keeps us out of the fray and out of the firefight, as convenient as that may be. And, I mean, sadly, I think I'm guilty of doing that, as I just, you know, skim Facebook and then quickly get out of it because I don't like to see the fighting and stuff. But the church does fight. We do strive against the wicked in this life. And so that's a verse, I think, that has a lot of application for the Church militant here as we strive against those who praise the wicked and have no use for God's law. And that flows into verse 5. Evil men do not understand justice. They don't understand right and wrong. I mean, they cannot see that when you abort a baby in the womb, that is nothing short of murder. Or when you promote homosexuality and homosexual marriage and try to foist it upon other people, um, that is not a just right thing to do. But those who seek the Lord have the understanding, the discernment to see, to see behavior and say, you know, that is good, that's a good work, and that's a bad work. And then finally, verse 6, better to be poor and walk in integrity, completeness, than the rich man is crooked in all his ways. Uh, and so if, if you are in a place in your life where you, you, you don't... We love to make comparisons uh, and, and, and try to keep up with the Joneses. That's part of our sinful flesh, to get jealous when people have more than us. This verse really calms that itch, or it should, to say, look, it is better to be poor and have integrity about you, a completeness that God gives because you belong to him, 
then have a lot of money, but really be a fool. You're crooked and deceitful. That's not good. It's better to be poor than be rich, have all the temporal things, and yet, uh, I mean, frankly, you're on the path to hell. So that verse really brings that home. Be content where you're at. Better to be content and faithful, right? For sure, for sure. That that the wisdom that the Lord gives, the faithfulness according to his word, that is better than any earthly riches. And and the temptation is always there for us to seek after those earthly riches rather than the things that the Lord gives. Rather than seeking first after his kingdom, we we seek after all the things that this world offers, the the mammon and everything that would seem to provide security for us. And and Solomon warns against that sort of temptation and gives us the true wisdom according to the fear of the Lord. And and in that vein, verse eight then fits very well the temptation to multiply wealth, the temptation to gain earthly riches can lead to oppression of, of those people who, who are worse off, the poor. So verse eight, whoever multiplies his wealth by interest and profit gathers it for him who is generous to the poor. Now, this is this is a verse that Luther had a lot to say about, Pastor Agrados. I think you, you did look some of these references up for us. Sure, I did, yeah. And before... I didn't know he had written so much about this, but he does have a tract, and he wrote some sermons on it about trade and usury. Uh, U-S-U-R-Y is how that word is spelled, for those wondering, and uh, it, it's a term to mean interest. He wrote something in 1524, and I had it on my shelf. It's actually in volume in the American edition. It's volume 45. So 1524, he's writing about this, and he's he's just very, very concerned about charging interest and he just sees this as a bad, bad thing. Now, a couple of things about, about that, and then we can get to the verse. Luther is living in a time when the world is rapidly changing, and even the economy that he's dealing with, going from more of a peasant, agrarian type of economy to one that's going to be more capitalistic, free trade is about to, to really take over Europe, so to speak. I mean, the new world is, is, has just been found. It, I mean, for what, 1492, uh, Columbus sells the ocean blue and so forth. It has just been located, so that's going to open up all sorts of possibilities. So as the economic situation is changing very quickly, uh, Luther has taken the line of, the, uh, uh, of canon law to say, you know, usury is bad. But I don't think it's fair to say that's just because Luther just doesn't understand the economies of the time, or it was changing too fast for him to keep up. I don't think I buy that. I, I think Luther, when you hear him talk about trade and usury and even uh, surety, I mean, putting up money for someone else so if they fall, you can back them up. Luther's opposed to all those things because he sees in them, well, with the uh, surety, he sees that, you know, if you put up for the wrong person, you're going to be liable. And that can just end in all sorts of bad things. People have to take care of themselves. But when it comes to the interest aspect, he he does talk in this track, and I didn't read the whole thing. Uh, I, I found it kind of late in the game before this interview, but you know, he is going to, to get on to the greed and the merchants who use interest as a way to really you know, take it from the poor and oppress the poor. So the neighbor is really being hurt by this. And getting to Proverbs 28, verse 8, the thrust of this passage, I would argue, is taking interest from people and hurting your neighbor by doing it. Or if you're a merchant, you're going to charge, you know, exorbitant prices. You give a loan to somebody, but just really, 
make them suffer and hurt to pay it back because of the interest you charge, but you know you, you've got them in a position where they need the money. Stuff like that is evil and wicked, and Luther sees that. He sees the greed in, uh, you know, this, this may make some people uncomfortable, but in a raw capitalistic society where un- so many unbelieving people um, are, are managing the finances and using them just to enrich themselves. And he has something in the track, like, look, borrowing and lending would be fine if everybody were Christians. <laughs> and I, I think that would be great, but uh, the reality is, and Luther knows this, we're not. We're not. And, you know, and he, he doesn't go so far in the track to say no interest whatsoever. I mean, he, he realizes to a degree, okay, this this can be done, but the thrust of his argument is this is a really greedy way to hurt people while you're enriching yourselves. And when you read verse 8 right here, especially in conjunction with other passages in Proverbs, um, at the very least, we need to be mindful and not charge interest to somebody who really needs our help. We help them, and then we just we hurt them even more you know, by requiring them to pay large sums of money back. And the second thing I would say, too, as Christians, I think we do need to be mindful of any sort of investment that, that does, you know, rake in a lot of interest. we got to keep an eye on that. And if we think for one second that's hurting or harming our neighbor, well, then we just, I mean, the short answer is we need to get away from it and stay out of it. I don't, I don't want to interpret this passage to, to, to make us feel good. I think it is one also that should uh, illuminate ourselves to see, you know, if we're using money to hurt our neighbor, then we need to stop it and repent and not be fixated on greed and enriching ourselves at the expense of someone who's in worse shape than we are. That is the great danger with money is to, and particularly in the situation that's being described here when it comes to the matter of interest, to to see a neighbor who's in need and think, I can use this for my own advantage, to, to hit him when he's down, if I can say it that way. And I think it's, and you can tell me what you think about this, Pastor Grotto. It's the the second half of the verse that whoever does this, this sinful behavior that we're talking about, is actually gathering it for him who is generous to the poor. So it's the opposite of of such greed. The opposite of theft in the seventh commandment is is not just not taking it, but it's actually generosity. And I think you see that here, such that the way, and this is the way that I, I think we can understand this, is that okay, you think you're going to get this profit now through this fleecing of your neighbor who's in need. But in reality, who's the one that in the end will will receive reward? Well, it is the one who's generous. I mean, thinking, and, and there I'm thinking even farther all the way to not only reward for this life, but heavenly reward. What I, I don't know. Tell me what you think about that second half of the verse. Sure. I mean, the Lord is going to take that wealth and he'll use it to help his people. Hmm. He'll use it to help the poor. And if you think you can save all these things for yourself and stockpile money, well, at the end of the day, it's not going to stay with you. You're going to die. And that verse is pretty clear. For the one who is generous, that money will go to him, and then he can use it the right way. So we see the Lord's purpose prevailing there. And I think that's a comforting aspect of that verse. Even though people are very, very greedy, and they take all the money for themselves, eventually God will give it to the right place, to the person who is generous to give it to those in need. And we still see that in the Church, of people who are who are very wealthy in the Church, and they are wonderful, great givers. So I would see that second half of the verse as a verse of comfort to us, that though people amass all sorts of wealth, God will make sure it gets to the right place. And so we shouldn't panic over those who are greedy or take matters in our own hands 
you know, when someone is greedy and, 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 you know, lead a revolt or anything like that, because God will make sure it goes to the right person, and we pray that he does it. And as his saints, we repent and, and do what we can to help the poor. God is the helper of the poor, and so his church does the same. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFU. Going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, October 15th. We're looking at Proverbs 28, verses 1 through 28. We've got Pastor Ryan Agrotowitz with us. He serves as the associate pastor and headmaster at Grace Lutheran Church and School in Brenham, Texas. Pastor Agrotowitz, prior to the break, we're looking at the first part of chapter 28. One of the, the really outstanding verses in this section is verse 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Here we have not only earthly wisdom, but certainly heavenly wisdom when it comes to confession and absolution. Take us into verse 13. Well, that's a great gift that Christians have, which is to hear absolution, God's absolution, through the lips of his servant, the called and ordained pastor. This verse nicely says what our Church does believe and confess, which is, you know, if you hide your sins, you will not prosper, but confess them. Repent! Repent, confess, and you will have the mercy that God promises and gives. For any Christian who is hurting and needs to get something off their chest, those sins that they know, feel, and experience, they certainly are not compelled to to list every single sin. Uh, Go to your pastor. Go, confess, and he is charged by God to forgive you. Uh, No strings attached. He pronounces absolution, and you go away in peace. And and the gift, really, it really is that good. It seems like there should be some strings or a big, lengthy to-do list. Um, But forgiveness in the sight of God is complete and total forgiveness. Your sins are absolved because of the atonement of our Lord Jesus to cover and pay for all sin. And when God says, I will remember your sins no more, he's not going to call them to mind because you are forgiven by the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So a good verse right there for us Christians and and anybody to remember. You know, let's be bold to confess and receive what God gives. Instead of harboring our sins and even defending them, man, that can be just rot to the bones. When we want to hold on to the anger, hold on to the regret, hold on to the guilt, There is no prosperity in those things. But to confess them, own up to them, and receive what God gives, that is true refreshment for the bones. In a book like Proverbs, it's such a a wonderful gift to have a verse like this, because the temptation is, when you're reading all these verses that say, this is what the wicked do in contrast to what the righteous do, this is what the foolish do in contrast to what the wise do, 
the temptation is for us to always want to look at our lives and try to put ourselves with the wise and the righteous in a way that's just not honest, in a way that's not real, and and to make excuses for our wickedness or our foolishness when those come up, as as we are both sinner and saint at the same time. And and a verse like this is a, a wonderful reminder to be honest when it comes to these Proverbs and where we have followed the way of the wicked or we have followed after the way of folly to confess that rather than trying to lie about it and be dishonest with only ourselves. We're only fooling ourselves as St. John reminds us in his epistle. We can simply confess it. And and when we do, when we don't try to cover up our own sin, we we're surprised by joy to know that God does cover our sins with the blood of Jesus Christ. And it, it is. It's just a preci- precious gift. And as you said, there's no strings attached. Go in peace. Oh, what, a, what an amazing thing. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. It is. Let's continue then with the rest of the chapter here in Proverbs 28. We're picking up now in verse 15. Like a roaring lion or a charging bear is a wicked ruler over a poor people. A ruler who lacks understanding is a cruel oppressor. But he who hates unjust gain will prolong his days. If one is burdened with the blood of another, he will be a fugitive until death. Let no one help him. Whoever walks in integrity will be delivered, but he who is crooked in his ways will suddenly fall. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. A faithful man will abound with blessings, but whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. To show partiality is not good, but for a piece of bread a man will do wrong. A stingy man hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. Whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. Whoever robs his father or his mother and says, that is no transgression, is a companion to a man who destroys. A greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. Whoever trusts in his own whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. When the wicked rise, people hide themselves, but when they perish, the righteous increase. That's the end of Proverbs 28. That was verses 15 through 28. So at the beginning of this section, Pastor Grotowitz, we've got two verses that deal with the matter of a ruler. We've got a, a, a roaring lion or a charging bear. That's what a wicked ruler is like for the poor people. The And then along those same lines, a ruler who lacks understanding is a cruel oppressor, but he who hates unjust gain will prolong his days. Take us, take us into this picture of an unjust ruler and a just ruler. Sure. So the unjust ruler would be the one who is in the category of the wicked and the fool. And so early on in verse 1, we talked about wicked people being afraid of everything. And, you know, you take a ruler who's just paranoid of everything. And I'm thinking of like a King Herod, and he may be a very good example here. This just came to my mind. When King Herod, for example, receives the Magi, and they say, we're looking for the one who's born the King of the Jews. It's not something you say to a guy like King Herod. And when he finds out he's tricked by the Magi, remember they have the dream and they go a different way after seeing the Christ, he flies into a murderous rage and has all the boys to and under in Bethlehem and the surrounding region slaughtered. So the slaughter of the innocent, Matthew has that account for us. We see what happens when rulers get paranoid. And, man, they are like the, the charging bear and the roaring lion. 
and you think about a roaring lion, a charging bear, at that moment, they just have blood on their mind. They're going to, to kill, to maul, and that's all they are thinking about. Discernment is out the window. And that's what you're going to get when you have a wicked ruler over a poor, oppressed, crushed people. Um, the one who lacks understanding, their understanding in the context of Proverbs, this is the understanding of God, a wise ruler who does fear God and does sing with temperance and patience and true wisdom from above, the one who hates unjust gain. So getting back to this idea of wanting to get something in an unjust way, oppressing people to fleece them and take what's not yours, that's bad and wicked. But the one who hates those things, the ruler who does turn from that, because that ruler has a deep understanding in the ways of God, there's going to be the prolonging of days. And I think, too, there's a connection, maybe even a little one, to what we talked about earlier when um, we talked about a land that has many, many rulers because the land has transgressed, as opposed to that man, that ruler with understanding and knowledge. There's going to be stability. Things are going to be prolonged because the ruler is operating with the wisdom, not his own. You know, as, as we see more and more of these verses in the book of Proverbs about kings or rulers, mm-hmm. I, I reflect upon our, our own situation in, in which we live in a country in, in which there's, there's no religious test for our ruler. That's, that's the way this country is designed is that there is no religious test. It's, that's part of the, the constitution of our country. And yet uh, there's, I, I know I, in my own reflection as a, as a Christian, there's been times where I've, I've said, you know, whether or not the person I vote for, or whether the person who has authority over me is a Christian or not, that's not the number one thing. And, and yet, and yet as I read the book of Proverbs, I, I wonder about that because, oh, sure. Sure. because a Christian should have a proper understanding of what is right and wrong according to true understanding. Such that, and maybe I could say it like this, all other things being equal, a Christian will make a better civil ruler than a non-Christian. Is that, I mean, is that true, Pastor Grotowitz? I completely believe that is true, yeah. Right, and, and I, was, I was overjoyed, and I may be on the minority on this, but there was this quote I used to hear all the time, that apparently Luther said, I'd rather be ruled by a wise Turk than a foolish Christian. And that always irked me, but, you know, Luther said it, and he's certainly much smarter than I am. And then I found some people doing some research trying to track that quote down, and they couldn't do it. They couldn't find it. And I I paid close attention to that because um, I, I was a little bit excited, maybe that's the word, to hear that they could not track it. And to my knowledge, the exact reference to that quote has never been found. He gets close in some of his tracks to saying it, um, but not the way we've heard it, that, you know, it's better to have a wise Turk than a foolish Christian. So if one of your listeners does find it, and I'm an error, I encourage them to please email me so I can make that correction. But at least a few years ago, there were some scholars trying to find it, and they couldn't track it down. And when you read Luther's writings, Pastor Apple, he is constantly calling upon authorities to do the right thing um, in, in spiritual and civil matters. He's always calling upon the government to, to do right. And so I don't think it's unfair to say, you know, he does want at least authorities who operate with a Christian mindset and a basis for passing laws and managing the land. Even in the tract on usury, he talks about temporal authorities, you know, setting some price controls and whatnot to fix the situation and curb against greed. 
you look at that, what he said, but and more importantly than just Luther, but look at the scriptures, look at Proverbs, read Proverbs, and you will come away hoping and praying, God puts a Christian magistrate, a ruler in power. You know, maybe they don't know everything about financial policy, but the Christian will look, th- look at things through the lens of God and not endorse and support something like abortion. Right, and I don't. I don't think we want to. I don't think either one of us or or I'm not. I'm trying not. We're not trying to bind someone's conscience, saying that you must say vote. And and voting is not the only way we participate in this in the civil realm as Christians, by the way. But but we're not binding someone's conscience, saying that if you don't vote for a Christian, you sin. But but rather to say, pay attention to how your rulers make use sure. of scripture. You know, when, when you hear them quote scripture, are they are they quoting it as God gave it or are they using it for some other purposes? And that's true no matter where your particular magistrate falls on the political spectrum. Are they making use of it the way that God intends to, to use according to his wisdom or are they making use of it for their own purposes? And, and pay attention to those things. And, and as you said, I think perhaps the most important thing we can say is that this is a, a cause for prayer on our parts. Lord, give us this kind of ruler, one who is wise and who will rule according to what you give in your word. Sure, yes. And and for the magistrate we have, if you know one does not agree with and like the policies of a magistrate who is over us, pray for them as well, mm. that the Lord would bring them to repentance and faith to do the right thing. And I want to echo what you said. I I don't want anyone thinking I'm trying to bound their conscience and and suddenly start declaring this vote to be a sin and that vote not to be a sin. I think if if we are to do that, we're stepping into a pile of sins Mm -hmm. by that. But yeah, to pay attention, Pastor Apple, yeah, to pay attention and pray. Pray for our rulers. Pray for the ones in power right now. They would do the right thing. And that down the road, the Lord would give us good, faithful rulers that we appreciate and continue to pray for. Moving on in the the text, let's let's go down to verse eighteen because I think there, with that right. verse, there's a bit of a an introduction into a, a broader topic. Whoever walks in integrity will be delivered, but he who is crooked in his ways will suddenly fall. That that verse seems to function as a, a bit of an introduction to several verses that delve into the matter of walking with integrity versus walking in a crooked way. Yes, I mean Christian walk. Is, is vital to your existence now, and certainly when you die to go be with your Lord. So one who walks in integrity, again, walking in this, this, this idea of, of completeness, honest, sound, wholesome, unimpaired, and even, this is interesting, I'm looking at the definition I wrote for this, this word, tamim in the Hebrew, even innocent. Well, how could you walk in innocence, being that we are sinful people? And the, the best and really only explanation, only explanation, is that you are innocent because you believe in God who takes away your sin, and that's how you are walking. And if you walk in a crooked way, walking in unbelief, denouncing God, going the opposite direction, it's going to be a quick fall. In this life, falling into unbelief, falling into the pit of sin and death, that's not good. And, of course, you know, the Day of Judgment, if that's where you're at, that's bad as well, eternally speaking. So we want the integrity that God gives, and honesty, to acknowledge who we are before Him. That's an important part of this of this integrity. We're honest with ourselves, getting back to that idea, too, of confessing our sins. And we have the integrity to, to believe in God and trust to Him to lead us and guide us, instead of relying on our own devices. 
So the way that that integrity then plays out in life is, is expounded in the following verses. Verse 19, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. Now, this is a helpful verse, I think, for, for a number of reasons. It certainly encourages us in diligent labor. And it is a reminder, for example, from some of the verses we looked at previously, verses three and six, when it talks about like, well, verse six particularly, better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. It's not that a rich man is being condemned precisely because he's rich. I mean, it has had to do that has much more to do with do you walk in integrity or not? Here we we do see, look, diligent work reaps a reward in this life. And that's not a that's not a bad thing. It's something to be received with thanksgiving as we pray in the fourth petition. The one who is working is the one also who should trust in God to give. And he's he's taking care of his labor. He's taking care of what he's been given and working. And we juxtapose that with the person who wants everything quick, everything easy, because he covets that which is not his and doesn't want to work for it. I mean, we remember part of the fall, curse of the fall. By the sweat of your brow, Adam, you will till the ground. And we don't escape that from this life. We do have to work. And so when we take upon the task, the duty of doing work, we're acknowledging what God has said about this fall in place. We, we cannot undo the curse of the fall. We can't change the political structure, change economic foundations, and think, aha, that's going to usher in the utopia that we want. No, the curse of the fall is going to be here until our Lord returns, and that curse entails working. And so here, the person who is working does so with the promise. The Lord sees what he's doing, and he will provide. And a worker who does labor and puts his trust in God is trusting in He who always has our needs before His throne of grace. Mm. And we can work with joy knowing the Lord sees what we're doing, He sees our faith, and He will give according to His good and gracious will, as opposed to the one who follows worthless pursuits. So I guess I need to get out of my Ponzi scheme, right? <laughs> because <laughs> the worthless pursuits are not going to pay off. I'm thinking about this show, I know we're getting short for time, but American Greed, and I, I used to love watching American Greed, because it showed people, you know, they're following worthless pursuits. They've got their Ponzi scheme, and they're trying to get rich quick. And it works great for a while, but in Ponzi schemes, they only work as long as you have new investors and new money coming in, right? Because you can't just stick with one sum and pay people more than what's already in the pot. And eventually, you know, it always it always falls down. Uh, but that verse just reminds us of what we see on the show like American Greed, okay? Do the work God has called you to do. Don't covet. Don't follow worthless, vain pursuits. Trust in God to provide. Yeah, I mean, and, and a reminder that, that work is a gift from God, too. He did give work before the fall into sin to Adam. He gave Adam to, to work and keep the garden there in Genesis 2. And so, I mean, certainly the curse now has affected our work so that it, it involves toil and sweat, and, and we don't eat except mm-hmm. by that. But the work itself does remain a gift from God. And, and it's not something to be avoided as, as if it were bad or as if it were a, a barrier to receiving what God wants to give us. Rather, it is the means by which God gives to us. And, and when we try to go around it, uh, whether through a worthless pursuit or in uh, verse 22, it says a stingy man hastens after wealth. The, the note there in the ESV indicates that the, the Hebrew there for a stingy man is a, a man whose eye is evil. So it, that person who hastens after wealth, well, what do you get really? You're going to get poverty. That, that's really all that's coming. Rather than 
working diligently in what God has given you, knowing, as you said, in trust that this is how God is going to provide for me and my daily bread. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure, sure. Yes, that's how he is going to provide. He, he's going to give it according to his good and gracious will and even use labor to do it. So we should work. And I like what you said about work uh, being a gift. Uh, that's a good reminder for me. So when I start complaining about all the work I do, <laughs> to remind myself, it is a good thing to be able to do this. And it is a gift, even though sometimes you know, the labor in the ministry can be hard. And really, in any, any vocation, I think what you said is helpful for Christians to bear in mind. Yes, you're working hard, but that work is a gift. Be thankful you can do it, right? I mean, uh, not everybody has that ability to go out there and work, even when they wish they should. So we should really uh, be thankful for that. But yeah, a lot of good things in that verse. No doubt, no doubt. So let's, the the final verses 23 through 28, perhaps we can lump them together and pull out a a few topics there. We we got about five minutes here, Pastor Grotowitz. So you tell me, where where do you want to focus in those five minutes? Let's see. So we are starting. Let's see. We took us down to uh, through uh, twenty, right? Um, where do I want to focus? Well, I say you, you've already read them. Let's just start talking to them and try to get through them in five minutes. How, how does that sound? I'll, I'll give you a one-minute warning, and then you can tell a us one, about yep. Jesus, okay? And then we'll close. That's How's good. That? A one-minute warning. Right. Yeah, I got to end on the right spot. I can't be left hanging on something that's <laughs> just not very comforting. <laughs> but uh, in you know, verse twenty. Again, the idea of hastening to be rich will not go unpunished. I mean, that gets back to coveting something, and you want it quick, and you don't want to work. We've talked about that. Verse 21, showing partiality. That is not good before a piece of bread. Man will do, um, a man will do wrong. So we don't want to be partial to some people. That is not good. And for a piece of bread, man will do, man will do wrong. If somebody is hungry, I think that might be a verse for rulers. When people start to go hungry... They will do wrong. They will do things that they shouldn't do. So that might be a good verse for rulers to keep in mind. You know, above all else, keep your people fed. For a piece of bread, a man will do wrong. A stingy man hastens after wealth. You know, these verses are, again, hitting upon the point that we've, I think we've done a pretty good job talking about. Uh, if, if you're going after wealth too quickly, you're coveting, and that's not going to be good. Let's concentrate now on 23. Rebuking a person... Whoever rebukes me in life would find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. This is hard for us to do. It's hard for me as a pastor, but uh, there's a lot in Proverbs about rebuking and calling people uh, to repentance, showing them the error of their ways. And the world thinks the opposite. To the world, you, you don't rebuke, but you let people live as they should live and make the decisions they want. That's the loving thing to do, not to call out sin. So the world has this backwards for the Christian, it is to be loving to call somebody to repentance. This rebuke can be done in a gentle way. It doesn't have to be with anger and finger pointing. But in love, one can tell another person, hey, you got to get out of this Ponzi scheme. Hey, you can't be treating your neighbor like this. You cannot oppress them, but you are to love them and help them. There's certainly more favor in that than just flattering somebody and telling them, Yes, your sin is okay. You know, keep living with your boyfriend. It's not a big deal. You know, we'll we'll just overlook that. And any number of sins that we have to deal with today. So, verse 23, an important one that rebuking is something that the church does. It's very hard and difficult to do, but it can lead literally to the salvation of a soul if they hear the word of God in your rebuke and by God's holy spirit they're brought to repentance. Hmm. Uh verse 24 
children need to obey the fourth commandment and not uh, steal from their parents. In in the end days, it's I think it's First Timothy one. Yes, where, where Paul is writing to Timothy, and he talks about the evil and wickedness of people wanting to, to kill their father and their mother. And the Lord Jesus talks about children rising against their parents, and here we're seeing that as well. So it's a, it's a mark of great sin when children steal and, and don't respect their parents as they should. So 24 has a lot to do with the fourth commandment. 25, a greedy man stirs up strife because he's greedy, and he wants something, and he's going to take it, and there's strife that's fine. The greedy person doesn't care because their hearts and mind uh, are on riches. But the one who trusts in the Lord, ah, that's the true riches. What does Jesus say? Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth that rust and moss destroy, but those eternal heavenly treasures where rust and moss do not destroy, and thieves cannot break in and steal. We hear that a lot, but we can't hear it too often because our hearts, our minds are greedy, and we want to go after the wrong things. And so Proverbs hits upon this quite a bit, but still it's never too much, because our old Adam needs to be curbed, and we need to be reminded. It is not wealth and riches that constitute true wealth in the eyes of God. And that's a lesson for us as Christian people, but the entire world needs to hear, uh, to, to, to hopefully by the grace of God, stem this this real, this this rabid desire for wealth and accumulating possessions. I'm going to give you your one-minute warning, Pastor Grotowitz. Wrap up and give us some Jesus. Yeah, sure. We need to trust in our Lord. We need to trust in our Lord and not be given to idols. The Lord in Him, there's true riches. You know, let's be content in this life. We all have plenty of reason to repent and turn to God. And wherever we are at in our stations, okay, if we are under a cruel oppressor, if we don't have as much money as we think we should have, look, we repent and look to God who always has our needs before Him, in Him our true riches, namely the forgiveness of our sins, the forgiveness of all of our horrible sins for the sake of Christ. That's our true wealth, that when we die, we live in the paradise our Lord has secured for us. Amen. Pastor Ryan Agrotowitz is the associate pastor and headmaster at Grace Lutheran Church and School in Brenham, Texas, helping us this morning with Proverbs 28, verses 1 through 28. Pastor Agrotowitz, thanks for being our guest today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.